following sermon is made available by Antioch Presbyterian Church, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Boys and girls, we've been, I hope, memorizing the catechism, repeating one each week in our worship service. And we recently had the question, what is the sum of the Ten Commandments? And you remember the sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. We know that, of course, all the commandments dictate our response to God, but particularly its commandments 5 through 10 that speak to us of how we love our neighbor. And I want today to focus on the requirements of the fifth commandment in particular of how we're to love our neighbor by the pattern that the Holy Spirit establishes for us here in Job uh, chapter 31. And that is that we are to love and to minister to those who are uh, our inferiors, not that people are superior in terms of person, but in terms of authority, as we find in the fifth commandment, uh, that we are to treat with love and care the, the poor, the needy, and the oppressed. Now, as I've meditated on these verses, it struck me once again how negligent a good bit of the modern church is with regard to our concerns for the poor and the oppressed. Oh, we can say a lot about what's wrong. Uh, we can rightly complain about a social welfare system that's actually kept people in poverty. Uh, and we can complain about the other extreme of the social justice warriors usurping the authority of the church. But I think too often our voices are silent and our lives are inactive. Uh, when it comes to a consideration of those in the culture who would be uh, economically or personally uh, inferior to us in terms of uh, authority structure, who would be needy, oppressed, in great care. But what we learn from Job is, is he is detailing, defending himself, but in God's wisdom in that process, giving us a, a full portrait of what it means to be a man who is... Uh, upright and blameless and fearing God and turning away from evil. He's dealt with sexual sins, both in terms of lust and in terms of um, uh, adultery and sexual perversions. He's dealt with uh, economic sins uh, in the broader scale in terms of equals and, and how um, one can easily abuse his neighbor. But now he turns his attention in verses 13 to 23 to a class of people that uh, on the one hand would be considered socially inferior because they simply are in positions of subjection under authority. That's what that means. People in subjection under authority. And then those who are uh, needy, who are poor, and who are oppressed. And he shows us by his own care and response to those people, while the Holy Spirit shows us, what is our attitude to be? And it's to be an attitude, I think, of uh, equity, um, grace, care, justice. So I want to show you 
uh, from these verses that the righteous person, the righteous man, the righteous woman has a biblical responsibility to his inferiors to treat them and to, his, and to the poor to treat them with equity, grace, and charity. The righteous person has a biblical responsibility to his inferiors and to the poor and oppressed to treat them with equity, grace, and charity. Keep those words in mind. Equity, grace, and charity. So we'll open the text up under three headings. The righteous with respect to inferiors. The righteous with respect to the poor and needy. The righteous with respect to a holy God. Well, in the first paragraph, verses 13 through 15, the Spirit describes for us the uh, attitude and the conduct of the righteous with respect to inferiors. If I've despised the claim of my male or female slaves, when they filed a complaint against me, what then could I do when God arises and when he calls me to account? What will I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him and the same one fashion us in the womb? Now, Job, in verse 13, and notice again the structure that we've seen here, if you're visiting today. Uh, this section is basically a series of self-imprecatory resolutions. The if statement is most often then followed by uh, uh, an oath of punishment if he broke it. And it was simply Job's way of saying, I've been faithful. And so you see we have a series of these if statements, verse 13, and then verses 16, uh, 19, 20, and 21. So with this statement, although this first one is not an oath of self-destruction, uh, uh, it is still in the same context of Job's swearing that his conduct has been um, righteous. So if I've despised the claim of my male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me. Now, um, the word slaves can be translated or understood both in terms of uh, uh, hired servants and as well as slaves. We know that Abraham had both. Uh, Job easily could have had hired servants as well as slaves. It didn't matter whether they were um, obligated to him uh, by being a slave or obligated to him um, by being an employee. Um, what he says is, is that he treated them with great equity. So whatever their claim was, when they filed a complaint in the complaint department, he did not brush it aside. He did not say, well, I'm the boss. You're the servant or the slave. We'll do it my way. I'm superior to you. I don't have to listen to you. We'll do it my way. I don't care what your situation is. I just finished reading, and it's interesting that Zach last week mentioned Southern writers, uh, Faulkner's uh, Dollar Cotton, very depressing book, but a book that opened up the heart of greed and the oppression, in that case, of black farmhands who were so ignorant they didn't even realize that they were being cheated and oppressed as they were taken advantage of. But that's been a problem, not just between white and black, but throughout culture and, and the civilization. In fact, uh, God then will later warn about this in the law in Deuteronomy 24, 14, and 15. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, 
whether he's one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns, you should give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it so that he will not cry against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. You know, obviously, what James had in mind in the passage we read in James chapter 5. He's referring to uh, these to this commandment that God gives to His covenant people, showing that this is a commandment that is universal. It goes back to um, the law that Job knew through tradition, through conscience, through uh, oral revelation. Uh, what is repeated in the Mosaic economy is then repeated in the New Testament. Uh, our Paul commands in Colossians 4.1, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness knowing that you too have a master in heaven. There's to be a relationship of love, fairness, and equity. So the servant, the slave comes complaining about living conditions, about his house, about salary, about a foreman who is mistreating him. The way the children of Israel went to uh, their authorities about the foreman and, and eventually to Pharaoh and, and complaining about the harsh treatment. And of course, that was just part of, of God's chastening of them. Um, and that was not alleviated. But in our case, it is to be alleviated. We're to have that relationship that I, I love this section in Ruth 2, 4, and 5 with Boaz and his servants. Boaz comes to the field uh, from Bethlehem and he said to his reapers, it's so simple, may Jehovah the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. What two most wonderful little simple sentences to show what the relationship ought to be between a superior and an inferior. Now many of us are in superior inferior relationships. So parents, children, you children are inferiors, according to the scriptures, the main principle established in the fifth commandment, and you are the inferior. And that means, of course, you have a responsibility to obey your parents. But here Job is speaking to parents. Oh, think about what Paul says, that we're not to provoke our children to anger. As parents, we must be careful to listen to our children, not when they're sassy or wrongly arguing, but if they come to us with a, a serious uh, problem or complaint, not to shut it down and say, well, I'm the father, I'm the mother, and I'm not going to listen to you. No, we must have tender ears to hear the concerns of, of our children. And of course, others of you are in managerial responsibilities. I did that for some 22 and a half years. Um, having people under me, having responsibilities, and to treat them according to the scriptures. And some of you in those positions need to consider how you treat those that work for you. Do you hear their complaint? Uh, are you gracious in responding? Or do you deal with them in true biblical equity? And of course, in the church itself, if this is to be true in the world, it's surely to be true in the church. It's true of us then who are elders in the church. That when the people of God come to us uh, with complaints, whether we think they're valid or not, we have responsibility to listen, not to domineer and dominate the flock, as Peter commands in 1 Peter chapter 5. And obviously then as well, it's all of us in the church. If in fact that this is how we're to treat inferiors, surely we must treat our equals in this way. So Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, instruct 
Um, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And Paul teaches us in Philippians then to consider others above ourselves. And so you see how this affects us. It's not simply that you've got to be the boss in a business or own the business, but there's so many relationships that we have. Uh, the principles established here, we are to hear humbly and compassionately the concerns of those who are inferiors, who are under us in those authority structures. And Job goes on then to give two reasons. At this place, it's not so much the oath, but he's simply saying, how in the world... Could I work arrogantly, behave arrogantly against those who are inferior to me? And the first is, he's going to answer to God in verse 14. What then could I do when God arises, when he calls me to account, what will I answer him? You see, Job lived under the realization of the all-seeing eye of God. And he knew he was accountable to God, and not just for his actions, but for his words and his thoughts. He's already got to this in verse 4. Does he not see my ways and number my steps? Job is saying, the Lord knows how I treat my uh, inferiors. And he's going to call me to an accounting for that. Of course, James picks up on that as well when he speaks of the day of the Lord being at hand. He's not talking about the return of Christ. He's talking about imminent Judgment chastening in the house of the Lord. And so that became a great motivation for Job. And it needs to be for us. And I've spoken often to you young people about this. Because you're at, many of you are at a time now where you're becoming to want secret lives. And, um, and even when you little ones think that you can get away with uh, disobeying your mother or your father... Little friends, don't ever forget that God knows everything that you're doing. And your parents might never find out, but God knows. Or when you're older and you think you can sneak around, God knows. And we're going to give an accounting. It's a very serious thing to, to keep in mind that all of us, uh, with this healthy realization, that we're going to stand before God, give an answer for the deeds done. In our bodies. Well, that was Job's first ground for his behavior. Uh, the second, then, is even, in a sense, more practical for us now, and but very common, repeated again throughout the New Testament, and that is, did not he who made me, verse 15, did not he who made me in the womb make him, and the same one fashion us in the wombs? Now, you see what he's saying here, as Paul repeats in, in Acts 17, uh, from one blood he made all of us, but more than that, God is the personal creator of every one of us in the womb of our parents, and every one of us, Every person is created by God in his image. There is no difference. Obviously, by uh, conception, by nature, we've lost knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. But every person born still has that remnant of the image of God with moral responsibility, with uh, dignity, because we bear the image of God. Um, uh, with the ability to reason and to think and to function in society. So how in the world do we look down on a person who actually by creation is a brother or a sister? 
That weighed heavily with Job. I don't think it weighs as heavily with us sometimes as it ought. When we're tempted to look down on people uh, as inferiors, not because of an authority structure, but because we think we are superior to them, forgetting that they are brothers and sisters who bear the image of God. And so the Bible speaks, uh, we could say, within the world of a threefold equality. I've already dealt with the first one, personal equality. Every one of us is made in the image of God. Every one of us then, because of that, every person has dignity and is to be treated with dignity. Uh, But there's a moral equality as well. And that's the fact that none by birth is morally superior to anyone else. On the one hand, I say we're all born with this original sin. But moreover, we're not to think because of a certain economic or, or caste system that we are morally superior to others. Nor are we to think that we're not responsible because of who we are to obey God and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's legal equality, equity before the law. Very much misunderstood today. In a properly organized culture, as we've seen the symbol, justice is blind in terms of it shows no favoritism to the rich or the poor, but seeks to um, minister the law with equity in all cases. And that should carry over into the church courts as well. And when our justices or people on the SJC and the PCA take their vow, part of that is that they will judge impartially. Which brings us to a fourth equality, and it is a spiritual equality in the church, not in the world. Uh, And that's the equality that Paul will spell out in Galatians 3, 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So we're a gathered people of God. And we're brothers and sisters. There'll be authority structures in the church. There's parents and children. There's managers and employees. Some of you work for the same company in different capacities. Um, And there is the responsibility of governance in the church with the elders deacons, but with respect to our standing in Christ, it's absolute equality. There's no difference for a slave and a free man, a woman or a man. No, rich or poor, all are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, mind you, this does not do away with male leadership in the church, because that is also revealed by Scripture. But just get it into your head. Authority, superiority, and inferiority has nothing to do with natural or spiritual superiority or inferiority. We have a good summary of this then in Larger Catechism 29, what we're to do. Um, how is the superior to treat the inferior? It's required of superiors according to that power they receive from God. And that relation wherein they stand to love, pray for, and bless their inferiors. There's Boaz coming to his men. Instruct counsel and admonish them, countenancing, commending, rewarding such as do well, discountenancing, reproving, chastising such as do ill. 
protecting and providing for them all things necessary, soul and body. And by grace, a wise, holy, and exemplary carriage to procure glory to God, honor to themselves, and so preserve that authority which God has put upon them. Well, this is a very good summary in 129 of the larger catechism of what the Spirit is unpacking here in this first paragraph. So the righteousness responsibility to inferior is to deal with that person always in equity, fairness, humility. Well, next then, we consider the righteous and the poor and needy. What's his responsibility? What's your responsibility here? This comes closer to home. Uh, he then says in verse 16 through, we'll look at the responsibilities first, uh, through 21. If I've kept the poor from their desire, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the orphans not shared it. But from my youth he grew up with me as with a father, and from infancy I guided her. If I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or that the needy had no covering. If his loins have not thanked me, if he's not been worn with the fleece of my sheep, if I've lifted up my hand against the orphan because I saw I had support in the gate. I've mentioned the structure, the series of ifs that will be fulfilled then in verse 32 and 23 is Job's way by the Holy Spirit to make these resolutions. He resolves three things here. Uh, Compassion, comfort, and care. Compassion, comfort, and care. Begins in verse uh, 20, uh, 16 with his compassion. If I've kept the poor from their desire, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail. Here he's talking about how he looked on uh, the plight and the longing the needs of those around him. So the desire of the poor would be that for hunger and uh, for uh, clothing and, and for warmth and, and for shelter. And the eyes of the widow have to do again with her deep desires, her needs and her longings. And he's first saying, I've not looked with disdain or contempt. I've not looked with a hard heart on the desires of the poor who live around me. But rather, he says, he looked on them with compassion. Do you have compassion? Now, again, it's more difficult in our day. We see so much of the unnecessary poor, of the charlatans and tricksters who are on our streets begging, and homeless people who are destroying our city. And it's very easy that we get so upset with the fake poor that we've lost compassion for the genuine poor. Just as Paul will speak about a widow who is a widow indeed. There's poor who are poor indeed. And you know, even, even when you drive by the beggar on the street corner who's overweight and asking for money for food, and of course there's a contempt, but even there we should have compassion. Not to give to that person, but to pray for that person. That God would have mercy on them and deliver them from uh, their uh, laziness and their uh, desire then to live off of the fruit of society. But when we see real needs, I guess I've wrestled all my life as an adult with lack of compassion. Pray for it often. Do you have compassion 
for the genuine needy that your heart goes out to them. And of course, the most needy are, are who? The unconverted. And we actually confessed our lack of compassion toward them in our prayer of confession. Does your heart break when you see these around you whose lives are in such a mess because of all the wrong decisions they made? Coming out of the blackness of their hearts, does your heart break for them? And then there's comfort. And by this, I mean, Job then shows us how, when we can, we are to minister comfort to these people. Verses 17 through 20. Have I eaten my morsel alone, and the orphan has not shared it? So he said, around him are the genuine poor. Now, he, remember, he dealt earlier with um, what I call the white trash of his culture. They were not genuinely poor. And he did not have any kind of, of um, aid to them because of their lifestyle. But here, um, again, so often the orphan and the widow are the, the cast off in society. In some societies, very bad. I know from a friend in Africa that... Uh, a widow in many uh, tribes in Africa is just in desperate plight in terms of she does not have uh, a children to care for her. So widows throughout history have been uh, those who have uh, been uh, neglected and disenfranchised and hungry. But he said he didn't eat alone. You know, he shared it, which means he, um, he opened the table. It's literally they ate from it, from his table. Now, I want you to notice the parenthesis, though, in verse 18. It's very telling for two reasons. Uh, but from my youth, he, the orphan, grew up with me as with a father. And from infancy, or from the womb, I guided her. Now, you see, he's saying that it's been a lifelong practice. It's not something that came later in him. But even uh, as he was a young man in his father's household, it had been his concern uh, to take care of the widows and the infants. But it's not just as a young man. So the second thing I want you to notice here is a testimony of covenant conversion. You see, he's testifying that he had a righteous integrity from infancy. Job, as so many of the saints in the Old Testament, grew up uh, never knowing a day that they uh, were not loving, trusting God, walking according to his law. And that should be the standard I, I think that we too often don't think about this reality. I love the testimony of Polycarp when he was called upon to uh, deny the Lord. Not just because he was faithful, but it was what he said. 80, he was 86 years old. 86 years have I served him, and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? You see, he had known God all of his life. And I want you children to know that this is the great privilege you have in the covenant. Now, we'll call on you to rest in Lord Jesus Christ, but it's my prayer for you, your parents' prayer for you. The reason we instruct you is not to get some experience out of you, but for you to be trusting Christ. And that you'll have this glorious experience of growing up, never knowing a day. that You could say with Polycarp for 86 years, or with Job, from infancy, I have cared for her. Because that is a great covenant reality. And we praise God for it. He goes on then to talk about how he gave them clothing. Verses 19 and 20. If I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or that the needy had no covering, if his loins have not thanked me, 
if he's not been warmed with the fleece of my sheep. So he first speaks again of those around him who actually are perishing and are perhaps dying because they're ill-clad in, in the winter. Uh, and, and that the needy had, had a need of covering, which also could include shelter. But notice what he says is that if his loins have not thanked me with the entirety of their being, that which he has clothed, that which he has warmed, the person itself has blessed him, has literally thanked him. If he's not been warm with the fleece of my sheep. And he didn't just do it then uh, casually. He did it at his own expense. You notice they were warm with the fleece of his sheep. It appears that he then paid his own servants to take the fleece and then to make clothing and to give it to the poor. And so he was industrious according to his means uh, in the care of the poor. So he was compassionate. He was full of comfort for them, real comfort. And then he also exercised care, care in the court. And so then he says in verse 21, If I have lifted up my hand against the orphan because I saw I had support in the gate. Remember, he was a, the chief magistrate. And anything that Job did as a magistrate would have been backed by everybody else. He's basically saying, I could be exempt from criticism. I'm king on the mountain. But he said, I never abused my authority. Never once did I abuse my authority against the poor or the needy or the oppressed. I did not raise my hand against them. I did not come down on them with oppression. No, Job says that he was a faithful and, and just, gracious judge. So he, he shows us here how then we are to uh, treat the needy. I'll come back to that, but just look very briefly then at the righteous and God. We've seen the righteous, his response to uh, the inferior. The righteous with his response to the poor, the needy, the oppressed. But now the righteous person before God in the last two verses of our text. Now is the oath. Remember the oath often reflects the sin itself. So he picks up on what he said about his hand was not lifted against the orphans. But I think the oath applies to this whole series. That my shoulder fall from the socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow. Have you ever had a broken bone, boys or girls? It's very painful. It's even more painful to have your arm torn from a socket. Yesterday I was watching a football game and strong burly quarterback had a serious break and this young man was weeping out of pain. We're talking about something that is disastrously painful. And that's what Job's saying. Let me be punished physically if I have ever acted unjustly or uncaringly toward the poor or the oppressed. And then he returns to this theme that's throughout here. In verse 23, for the calamity from God is a terror to me because of his majesty, exaltation, I can do nothing. Where does he end? Yes, he, he calls, let him be punished. But he ends again with this realization that he is going to give an answer to a holy God. The terror of doing that itself becomes a motivation in his life to deal fairly with all. 
He knows that when he stands before the exalted majesty of a holy God, his mouth will be shut. There's no answer that he has to give for any of his misconduct. When the indictment is read and one stands there, guilty. I once went to court with a young man in the church who was guilty of check-kiting. He'd come to repentance, and, but he had his day in court, and I went with him. This is one of those images you never forget. As he sat there, and the judge said, what do you plead? He couldn't look up. He looked down in shame. He said, guilty. He didn't say, I have an excuse, you know, I, I couldn't buy food. I couldn't put gas in my car. No, he said, guilty. That's what Job is reminding us of. What the Holy Spirit wants you to be, realize this morning, my friend. Perhaps you've been convicted by the very things that are in this text, but perhaps it's not that. But just as sin is mentioned, the Spirit's dealt with your conscience. You know you're guilty. Do you know you're going to stand before this almighty, exalted judge? Who's, as Job said, he sees all things. He rises against you. And you will stand there. And he will go through the list of all your offenses. And you will say, guilty. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. That's the condition you're in right now. In your native natural condition. But if you will turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Take hold of him as Savior. Then you'll be covered by his righteousness. Not only will your sins be forgiven, but God will constitute you righteous, and on that day, Christ himself will say for you, not guilty, because he has my righteousness. And that's the only hope for any person in this world. And so, we should be motivated. But on the other hand, we should be Flee to Christ. Even as Christians, we recognize that we have surely mishandled these situations. I think back my own life, so many instances. And yet, we flee to Christ. We're covered by Him. So the Spirit shows us here then our responsibility as Christians, as those who want to walk righteously before God, as righteous men, women, boys, and girls, how we're to treat with equity and grace and charity. Justice, those around us, inferiors, poor, and needy. And I want you to think long and seriously about this, because I think that it's an area that uh, we, need, uh, we need reformation. It's one of the reasons I'm so thankful for consecutive expository preaching. I'm glad the Spirit made me preach on this text of Scripture. And in God's time, it's a text that I needed, but it's a text that you need as well. And that we are to be lovers of one another, even as John tells us in 1 John 3, whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. So friends, how do you love personally, in deed and in truth? It begins with the heart of compassion. We have a lot of different resources. And many of you don't have a lot of disposable resources. But we all should have compassion on the needy and the poor that are around us as I have uh, defined them and their situation. 
And thus, there's many things that we can do as individuals. Some will, along the way, have more disposable income. And in those cases, there are organizations and groups that are serving this community. I think of Calvary Home for Children, which is sponsored by our Presbytery. Our very fine Christian drug alcohol rehab center where men and women can go and hear Christ as the answer to their problems or crisis pregnancy centers. Now, I would encourage you, if you have disposable income and you want to do something like that, you still consult with your elders. Make sure that this is the best place for you. And others of you, most of you not now, because except for a few of us, you all have small children. So you don't have much disposable time either. But as you have disposable time to volunteer uh, in a uh, crisis pregnancy center or a home for uh, abused women and children or uh, in a genuine Christian um, agency that is trying to present the gospel and feed and care for the poor. And you have a voice. It's a voice that needs to be raised in prayer and then according to your place and ability and calling, in calling out. A voice for the unborn. A voice for the abused women. A voice for kidnapped and uh, children and women forced into sexual slavery. A voice for those who are being uh, uh, betrayed by their parents and by a government that wants to destroy their bodies. Cry to God, and then as you have your voice, speaking privately, writing letters to the editor, we have many different callings and opportunities, but let us raise a voice on behalf of the poor, the oppressed, and the needy. In our precatory prayers, let us raise a voice as we do in our prayer meeting. But then corporately, what do we do? And this is where I want you to realize that God has given to his church the great engine to care for the poor and the needy. And what is that? It's a diaconate. God in his glorious wisdom, as he constituted his church, gave us two classes of officers. Elders to govern spiritually, to judge carefully, to shepherd the flock. And deacons care for the needy and the oppressed in our midst. We define ourselves as a parish church, and that means from day one we have been committed in our organization one day to have a very active, passionate, well-trained diaconate. It's part of who we are, part of what we do. We want you men to consider praying. Perhaps God would have you to serve as a deacon uh, in his church. Um, we want to train deacons. It's not being done. The deacons is the most underutilized office or resource in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do not want that to be here. Because this is where you will give your money. This is where deacons will uh, act on your behalf. This is where you'll come alongside them and volunteer to help in the areas. And it's not physical maintenance is one part. Yes, that's a stewardship. But it's people maintenance that also must be done. There will be needs. Um, eventually there will be widows who will need to have their lawn cut or uh, things done at the house. There, right now, 
families with newborns that will need uh, uh, food and meals, families who've had surgery. Um, there'll be many opportunities to come alongside the deacons as well. Every one of us in prayer and offering of our time that we might do this and give. The most underfunded thing that we do in this church is the diaconal fund at communion. I think you must think it's just a bit of a tradition. You know, we've been able to do some very good things for a small church. We've helped in two cases overseas. We've helped in a number of in-house problems with people. But it's an under-established, um, given to fund. This goes back to the early church. Justin Martyr describes it. People, they weren't bringing money. They didn't have any money. They bring chickens and eggs and uh, fruit and vegetables. And that was for the poor. You said, we don't have any poor. Well, we, if we don't hear, we do have poor friends around the world. We have oppressed friends in the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do have needs in our own church. Many times you might be not aware of them, but, but Pastor Groff and I have been. And so consider that daconal fund is something that should be well furnished, well funded, so that we can uh, fulfill in our little place here in Spartanburg County this responsibility. And then parents, to teach your children these things, I meant to say this earlier, take them then to visit elderly shut-ins. Take them to a nursing home. Part of my own call to the ministry came out of the reality that I had a lady that took me to visit poor people, shut-in people. And uh, that was quite significant, and God's calling me to serve him. Maybe that'll work in the lives of some of these young men here as well. But it'll create compassion in your children, and it means so much to the elderly in those places. And again, we can hook you up with folks that will enable you to do that. And above all, look at the exemplar. He who impoverished himself to make us so wealthy. Who walked around with compassion. Is it not remarkable? I don't know one attribute that the gospel writers emphasize as much as the compassion of our Savior. Look at him. Pray for the Spirit to work in you the compassion of the Savior. Let us pray. Lord, we, uh, we bless you. We pray you'll shake our consciences, Lord, that you'll move us to um, become more aware of what we may and can and should do uh, in our individual callings and capacities and not make an excuse because right now we don't have either temporal or physical resources. But Lord, let us develop a concern, a care. Let us be like the widow who gave all she had, Lord, when she put her might in the box. May your spirit move greatly in us unto these ends for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.